0: Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you this morning. I'm Emily. This is my husband, Jeff, and we get to read the word this morning. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came
1: Thank you, you too. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been going through a, a series called Prepare for Spiritual Battle. What you need to know, what's so critical for all of us to know, is that there is nothing more important in your ongoing, relentless spiritual battle, there's nothing more important than the gospel. The scriptures say that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The scriptures say it's the gospel that is the only hope you have. And so the devil has a decoy. If you are going to be prepared for your spiritual battle, you need to know the difference between counterfeit Christianity and the gospel. Between the devil's decoy and true Christianity. See, here's the deal. Counterfeit Christianity is the evil one's most effective way to lead people away from God and into destruction. Unfortunately, it is popular and people who buy into it don't even realize they've been ripped off. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants us to understand the kingdom of God. And he wants us to understand the good news of God's grace in Jesus. And he ta- Jesus takes on some really difficult and important issues, especially counterfeit Christianity. Because it is dangerous, it is spiritually destructive, and it is incredibly common. I don't know about you, but when we, you may have heard that passage before, and so you've been really familiar with it. And so and when you're familiar with things, you, sometimes you just don't even really listen. But Jesus said some really difficult, challenging words here, and we're going to get into that because this is a critical issue. See, when Christianity is used, to conform people into our likeness. Or when Christianity is is used to manipulate people to behave a a certain way. Or when Christianity is reduced to some kind of self-improvement plan. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just good advice. The gospel is good news. There's a big difference. Good advice, is, it doesn't transform people to be like Christ. Only the gospel can do that. Now, I don't want people putting words in my mouth. I'm not anti-good advice. Good advice is good, okay? I'm just saying that good advice is not enough to save you. It's not enough to change you. And most preaching in America today is good advice with verses sprinkled into it, and they call it the gospel. Countless people have accepted a religious distortion of Christianity, and therefore countless people have rejected a religious distortion of Christianity. And they're thinking, if that's what Christianity is all about, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. So we must be a church that teaches and preaches and prays against moralistic, self-righteous religion in our lives and in our church and in our world because it leads to destruction. It's counterfeit. It's the devil's decoy. We got to get this. If you're going to be prepared for your spiritual battle, you need to get the gospel so this morning what I want to do is so I want to try to strip away the religious language or the, and baggage so that the gospel can be seen for what it is. Now, if you know me at all, you know that this issue is incredibly important to me, but I think I'm in good company because as you read through the gospels, you see that it's incredibly important to Jesus as well. In fact, that is why Jesus is constantly contrasting two different things. Uh, You just look at his parables. A while back, we did a series on Jesus' parables. and, And we see throughout the Gospels, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector. You have the wheat and the weeds. You have the sheep and the goats, the two wineskins, the two debtors, the two sons, the two groups of workers, the two paths, the two trees, and the two builders, Jesus is constantly contrasting two different things to, to preach the same thing over and over again. Why does he do that? Why does he keep kind of, it seems like he's beating a dead horse that he never, never moves on. Well, people would, as they would listen to Jesus teach, People would take what he said and pour it into their own categories. And they weren't really listening to Jesus at all. And we have a tendency, we're inclined to do the same thing. We take the words of Jesus and and read it the way that we want to read it. And we come to a conclusion and and we say, yeah, I agree with you, Jesus. You're basically saying what all the other uh, religions say. It's all about love. Or, yeah, Jesus, I agree with you. It's all about being a good person and trying to be a better person. I'm right there with you. Jesus. And Jesus has to keep saying, no, you don't get it. You still don't get it. No one has ever said the things that I'm saying. No one's ever claimed the things that I'm claiming. I do not come into anyone's life to, uh, to tweak or refine their life so they can have their best life now or whatever. I do not come in to tweak or refine their current philosophy of life. No, he says, I came here to shatter your philosophy of life. I'm here to destroy all your foundational assumptions because they will destroy you and so many others. And Jesus says, I demand to be the lens through which you see everything. Do you see how important this is? Now, you know, usually most Sundays, you know, we have people here uh, who don't yet claim to be a follower of Christ. And and so far, maybe you've rejected uh, the message of Jesus. But you need to know that it's very likely you never heard the message of Jesus. And his words have been poured into man-made religious categories, if not, you know, by, by you, then by those you know who call themselves Christians. You know, maybe others of you uh, will say, you know what, I, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, but here's what's incredibly sobering in, in what we just read, uh, Jesus' words here. There will be people on the last day who say the same thing, And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because they're looking through a distorted lens of man-made religion. Jesus' purpose is nothing less than a, than a revolution of understanding. I mean, he wants to, out of love, he wants to shatter your old moralistic lens and give you a new gospel lens. He wants you to listen to him and view all of life in a brand new way. So as we look at this, this parable, let's, let's try to answer this question. And the question is, what do we learn about these two different lenses? What do we learn about the gospel and the devil's decoy. We see three basic lessons. The first one is this. At first glance, the lives they build look alike. These two houses look alike, but they, have very, they are very different. I, I saw um, a video on my Facebook feed the other day, and it was titled something like, moms pranking their kids or whatever. And so in this one, in this one video, this mom says to her kids, who, who, wants a, who wants a homemade caramel apple? And the kids are like, we do. And she's like, here you go, and passes them out. And they take a big old bite out of it, and they start chewing, and then their face starts to distort in disgust, and they spit it out because their loving mom gave them what looked like a caramel-covered apple, but it really was caramel-covered. Onion and they were grossed out, and the mom thought it was hilarious. The kids didn't, but it looked like the real deal, and it wasn't. Now that's like a light-hearted example, but I think anybody who lives life long enough on this planet gets ripped off at some point or another. Have you ever bought something that ended up being a fake? I mean, how did how did that make you feel? You thought you got were getting one thing and you got another. See, Jesus does not want you to get ripped off, especially when it comes to what is more, the most important in life. And so he's contrasting two very different ways to build your life that look similar. That's why this is so tricky. But they're very different. Most people, and I think in most churches, uh, they assume that our main choice is between obeying God's law or disobeying God's law. Applying biblical principles or not applying biblical principles. But that's how we want to read the Sermon on the Mount. But, but how? I have a question about that. How would that be two houses that look alike? Why would people then be surprised at all when they realized that they had chosen the wrong one? See, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, what you see, Jesus doesn't say, here are people who obey God's law and people who don't obey God's law. No, he's saying, here are people who obey God's law, but I want you to obey like this. Jesus does not say, here are people who pray and here are people who don't pray. No, he says, here are people who pray, but I want you to pray like this. He does not say, here are people who give to the poor and people who don't give to the poor. No, he says, I want you to give to the poor, but, but like this. Jesus is contrasting two things that look similar, but they're totally different. It's not, it doesn't just come down to one is good and the other is bad. They're both good in that both groups are trying to obey God's law. Both are praying, both are giving to the poor, both are going to worship, both are studying the Bible, both are trying to obey the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is saying, at first glance, they look alike, but, and this is our second point, when the storm hits, one stands and one crashes. Now, the storm here is, in Jesus' parable, it represents The final judgment, okay? And Jesus says, even though these two ways look alike, their endings are totally different. And what's scary is that some people will be surprised. So Jesus says in verse 22... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, or you evil doers. They were doing many mighty works in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So we have religious people here, not only obeying God's law, not only are they praying, not only are they giving to the poor, they're doing impressive ministry in Jesus' name. In our day, maybe they'd have you know hundreds of thousands of people reading their blogs and listening to their podcasts, or they're writing, entertaining, and challenging, you know, religious self-help books that top the New York bestseller list, or so they're they're selling out conferences, and pastors show up from everywhere to be just as awesome as they are. I mean, they must really get it, right? Jesus says, some are going to be shocked when their house crashes. And when Jesus says depart from me I never knew you. What's really scary is says that many will be shocked on that day. This should get our attention. This is something we can't just dismiss as hair splitting. This is the ball game. This has eternal consequences you can see this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where in chapter 5, Jesus talks about people in the kingdom of heaven and people outside the kingdom of heaven. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So both groups in this verse are in the kingdom of heaven. Some are doing well. Some are doing not so well, but both are in the kingdom of heaven. But now listen to this next verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, unless your righteousness surpasses the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven Right here, Jesus is talking about how these super-duper religious people are not in the kingdom of heaven at all. I mean, think about that. Jesus is contrasting self-righteous religion and the gospel. The devil's decoy and counterfeit Christianity. At first they look alike, but they're totally different. Different. We cannot mistake being a follower of Jesus for trying to be good. We can't mistake being a follower of Jesus with obeying the God's law or going to worship, reading the Bible, or giving to the poor. You can do all of that and be on your way to destruction and not even know it because on the surface it looks like you're doing really well. This is what Jesus is saying the devil's decoy is deadly. So maybe you're listening to that and you're thinking that you're kidding, right? I thought following Jesus means that that you leave the immoral lifestyle and follow Jesus' example and obey God's law. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? that is involved, okay? But that falls far short of being anything close to the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And when the storm hits, true Christianity stands and supports you and self-righteous religion crashes and crushes you. Why? Well, this is our last point. Because one is built on the rock and one is built on the sand. These two houses, they look alike. It can be incredibly deceptive if you don't know what to look for. But they have totally two different foundations. So let's look at them. So what's the sand foundation all about? It's self-righteous religion that says, I can do it. There are good people and bad people. God rewards the good people, punishes the bad people. If I live a good life, then God will love me and reward me. That is not the gospel. And that is taught in Sunday schools and churches all over, all of the time. And Jesus says you're building on a religious foundation of sand and you're going to crash. Instead, instead of obeying God to get Him to love you, you obey God because he loves you. And that's especially critical to teach our children. I, I find it is, adults, anyway, fall into kind of religious manipulation and guilt tripping um, uh, when it comes to parenting their children because you just want your kid to behave. Your kids need the gospel. They need to be motivated by who Jesus is and what he has done and then see that obeying God is the best way to live. I'll unpack that a little bit more later. I want you to remember how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins. He says, Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, only those who say, I have nothing in and of myself of value to offer God. I am not good enough, and I could never be good enough on my own to earn God's approval. I am no better than anyone else. I cannot do it. Only spiritual beggars like that can enter the kingdom of heaven. And many commentators say that the reason poor in spirit is first in Jesus' sermon is because if you're not in poor in spirit, when you start Jesus' sermon on the mount, you'll be poor in spirit by the time you finish it. Because Jesus raises the bar so high, none of us can make it. Listen, listen to what he says. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And he goes on to say, you heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemies. Now listen, this is critical. Okay? And be really plain spoken here. Anything short of this is sin that destroys us and condemns us. We cannot water down these commands. We cannot try to lower the bar. Jesus won't let us do that. We cannot say, well, I'm sure Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect. But the very next thing Jesus says is what? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God does not grade on a curve. And all holy God deserves and demands perfection. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a serious problem with that. Because it turns out that all of us are inclined to build on sand. And So where does that leave us? What can we do? Jesus tells us in chapter 7. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an apple, you give him an onion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So... The goodness that you need to enter into God's kingdom and stand in the storm is a gift of God's grace. Instead of watering down God's demands or simply trying harder or just giving up in despair, you ask God to give you his perfect goodness. You ask God to clothe you, to, to dress you in Jesus' righteousness. And the gospel says that God answers that prayer. Because what is the rock? It's Christ. Jesus is the foundation of Christianity, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. He is the lens through which his true followers view all of life. He is the rock upon which you can build your life. And the gospel says, you know, I can't do it myself, but Jesus did. I can't be good enough to gain God's approval, but Jesus has lived a perfect life of goodness for me. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, who is it really describing? There is only one person. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of Jesus. He is the only one who is good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. He was the only one who was never sinfully angry. He is the only one who never had lust in his heart. He was the only one who loved his enemies. He is the only one who is perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. And the gospel says that Jesus lived that life for you and gives you credit for it. Now, Jesus did not show up just to be a good example. He was a good example, and it is helpful. But we need more than that. He came to us primarily to, to be our substitute. If all you have is Jesus' says as, a, as an example, then you're lost. You're building on sand and you're going to crash. So do you know what Jesus does for you? He trades houses with you. He gives you credit for his perfect life. See how the gospel's so, see how it's really different when you look at it? And having lived for you, then he died for you. He took upon himself all of our sin, all of our anger, all of our lust, all of our prejudice, all of our self-righteousness of trying to be our own Lord and Savior. He took that sin upon himself and died our death. And when the storm, when they hit, he was destroyed instead of us. The world is desperate for this message. So how do we build on the rock? It begins by trusting in Jesus as our substitute. By knowing that God looks at you and sees you as perfectly good in Jesus. And as a result, when the final storm comes, you will stand because it doesn't depend on your goodness. It depends on Jesus' goodness. Well, maybe you're thinking, you know, that's interesting. I never quite heard it explained like that before. Well, let me encourage you. Don't stop there. Make it a priority to understand the message of Jesus. Talk with a Christian friend uh, who gets the gospel of grace. Keep coming to services, you know, whatever you need to do to wrestle with this. Others of you might be thinking, you know what, this is dangerous, Matt here. I mean, if, if you take grace so, seri- so, take grace so seriously, then people are not going to take sin seriously. I absolutely disagree with that. The only way you could take sin seriously is if you take grace seriously. Most people, when they don't take grace seriously, if somebody sins, other religious people will do one of two things. They'll either shoot the person or just kind of sweep it under under the rug. That's not loving. That's not helpful to anybody. Paul tells us in Romans that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Only by taking grace seriously will you have any ability to fully confess your sin and take it uh, seriously and and bring it out into the light. That's the only way. It's easy, though, for us to be be nervous about that and then default back to a a, a distorted religious lens because it makes us feel more secure or something, but it's a false security. For those of you who are Christians, you need to know that all of us to some degree or another uh, still kind of look through this distorted religious lens and as a result, when the storms of life hit, we either say... I'm mad or I'm bad. We either get mad at God or we kick ourselves to the curb. But to the extent that you are building your life on the rock, you will say, I'm not mad because I know I deserve far worse and I know God isn't punishing me because all of my sin was punished in Jesus. And to the extent that you build on the rock, you can be a person of stability and strength and peace even in the storms of life. I want to tell you, I want to emphasize here, that God calls us to respond to this good news. Again, not to get God to love us, but because he loves us. And one of the most important things, when we see that our hearts will be filled with love for God and a desire to be loyal to to him, And it's that love, that gospel-driven love, that gospel-driven loyalty is is what stirs up a godly zeal for you to go to great lengths to obey God. You'll want to. You know, using guilt to motivate people only works. It's short-lived. It's like a flash in the pan. Uh, Maybe you obey until you stop feeling guilty and then you do whatever you want. But if you're regularly preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and it fills your, your heart with a desire to worship him, and then you're going to want to do anything possible, anything you can to glorify God and to obey him and to follow him, it becomes your highest priority. So it doesn't just end with, yeah, God forgave me, I could do whatever I want. That is the distortion of the gospel. If you get the gospel, you'll want to be obedient. You'll love being obedient because you're glorifying the one that you love more than anyone else because he first loved you, and he proved it on the cross. See, it's this good news. That is so powerful to the extent that you believe the gospel. You will obey God out of love and loyalty. And the law no longer destroys you. It now delights you. And you no longer hate the law for crushing you. You now love the law because it glorifies the one you love the most. Your greatest desire will be to glorify God. This powerful gospel is what saves you and changes you. It is not just good advice with Bible verses sprinkled in. This is good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and it has massive implications for your life. Massive implications for your eternity. Jesus calls you to trust him. He says, I put before you two approaches to life. He says, there are two houses, one built on the rock, one built on the sand. And they represent two views of reality. And when the storm hits, one stands, the other falls apart and crashes. And Jesus says to you today, which one do you want? Whichever one you want, it's yours. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?